the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David talks with playwright and comedian Lewis Black. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is an incredibly intelligent and accomplished actor, playwright, novelist, and of course, comedian. Although he's probably more currently recognized for his work as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and now Trevor Noah, his work has spanned decades with memorable parts in Hannah and Her Sisters and as Anger in Pixar's Inside Out. And a number of other popular comedy specials, he's amassed a, a huge fan base. Here to chat about his life, career, and whatever is likely pissing him off right now is the ever so charming Louis Black. Louis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. So you've got a really interesting family history, and, and, and I feel like looking at your career, I maybe see some kind of themes and influences possibly from that. If I'm correct, your grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Russia, and their, their last name was not Black. What's the story there? Uh, you know, my, the name came, which I finally discovered. I did uh, Finding Your Roots with um, well, my brain. Um, I did Finding Your Roots and on PBS, and I, I hope he won't be watching this, so he can't be upset, but I can't, but it's really, my brain has been, I'm still waiting for it to return after the, after the two years of being out of commission, having to hide out from the, from, from, from what was happening out there. Um, but uh, I learned that um, I'd always, but nobody could tell me that, that my family name, you know, where it came from, because people go, well, you must have been Schwartz. No, we weren't Schwartz. Because I'd ask them, all of the, the basic questions I asked, you know, what was black in Russian? No, nope, that wasn't it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, there weren't people at Ellis Island going with a dictionary, going, oh, there's, no, it turns out, uh, according to uh, Mr. Gates, uh, that, uh, that basically, when uh, our families came over, you know, from uh, Europe, uh, you know, uh, Jewish, Italian, whatever, uh, you know, Russian, Italian, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, all of them, that they would basically the name would be uh, a version of the name as it sounded. So they might Americanize the name. Mine was Black, B-L-E-C-H or B-L-E-C-H, Black, which is a horrifying it would have, I never would be in comedy. I probably would have asthma and be wearing braces now. Black is it. So they changed it to black. And whoever did that, I'd really like to thank them. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we did one of those things and we found out actually, I thought I was Italian, Dutch, and Polish, which which made me think I would, you know, I, I would always joke that I'd wear really tacky wooden shoes and I still wouldn't know what they were made of. Um, <laughs> and, and then I found out actually that um, I was, uh, part Jewish because apparently my grandmother had a fondness for her boss. And so we found this out like when my father was like in his seventies. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, so now I'm, now I'm Italian and Jewish. So I don't know whether I should scratch my crotch or complain about the itch. <laughs> um, so, so um, how did your family find its way to the DC and, and, and Maryland area? Was that where they originally immigrated to? What made no, them put roots no. down there? No, my, uh, the family, the, the bulk of the family, uh, both sides, mom and pop, went to New York, stayed in New York. My parents uh, went, I'm not going to do this. We're not going to stay in the midst of this. 
you know, family madness. And they made the decision uh, in part, I, I, and I've never really, uh, I think, it, it just it, as they described it, just to get some distance from the family. And it possibly because of Pop's job and uh, Mom, you know, that they got work in, in the Washington, uh, you know, initially Mom was working in Washington as a teacher and uh, Pop was uh, working uh, in the government down there as a, doing um, mechanical engineer design. And then, uh, so they moved out and stayed out. And, uh, and, and it was really, you know, they just did not want to deal with a lot of that family stuff. And both of them made the decision and, and moved away. So it was kind of like that, that uh, they were the first generation and they went, okay, we're going to go uh, try to see what the rest of the world is like. See ya. And that was that. Now, was anyone in your family particularly funny? I mean, where did your particular style or sense of humor originally come from? My mother is really funny. My mother is really sarcastic, uh, brutally so, much more so. I, my father had a real sense of where the joke should be. You know, he could he had the idea of, you know, he's the one who kind of would tell my mother, basically in so many ways, my mother was, my father was like the audience who went, okay, no, you've gone too far. Um, but my father was the one who introduced me. He was reading Catch-22 and laughing, and I was 13 or 14 or 12, and he, I said, you like that book? And I, he said, yeah. And I said, should I read it? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. It'll tell you a lot about what you should know about living in this world. And, no. I, and that really opened me to comedy, as my mother did in terms of uh, her sense of humor. Her sense of humor to give you, even now, at 103, um, she said, when I saw her the, the a couple of times ago, uh, she said to the uh, caregiver that was there, um, you know, my son just put me to sleep. I can't imagine what he does to an audience. Still got it, right? Yeah, so no, so it's always been that. So you had to, so I had to basically deal, be ready for battle. <laughs> what comedians did you have access to in your early years? I mean, were, was it things like watching TV, like Carson and Carol Burnett, or did you guys have comedy albums? What, 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 where did those additional influences that helped you kind of start going down that path? And I know you did the playwright thing and I want to talk about that in a yeah. bit, but I was kind of curious as to, as well, to the, those types the of comics things. were the Ed Sullivan had on a comic every week. And so that kind of fascinated me. And they were all kind of guys who worked up in the, worked around the country in the, in the limited amount of clubs that were there, or um, they worked up in, uh, you know, the, uh, in the Catskills and the Borscht Belt. Um, and, and so I, I studied that. I mean, I didn't really study them. I watched them because it fascinated me what they were doing. Uh, and then my parents uh, had a copy of, um, and went to see Nichols in May. And so they had a copy of their albums. They also had a copy, there was a guy named, this is something nobody will even know, but in New York City there was a, uh, a, a kind of a review uh, that a guy named Julius Monk put together, and a lot of the people who went on to write, uh, who wrote TV and, uh, uh, and stuff was, and, uh, and were performers on Carol Burnett and other places eventually, um, did these reviews, and my parents had those albums, so they had these kind of very funny bits on them. Uh, which are more sketches, and uh, and they went and saw my parent, my my uh, they went and saw Lenny Bruce, um, and so uh, and and I they'd come back and talk to me about it, and so uh, 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 
I got the George. Then when I could, I grabbed, you know, my friends and I grabbed George Carlin. We grabbed, uh, you know, uh, Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart, the Vaughn Meter, the the first family, all of that stuff, anything. It was Stan Freeberg, who nobody really remembers. Um, uh, you know, the, all of those guys kind of over time uh, uh, either would listen, I would have the album, someone else would have the album. And and I, you know, uh, well, let me ask you this. When you went to, to college and you were going to study playwriting at UNC Chapel Hill, you know, uh, coming from, uh, you know, a second generation immigrant family where everybody wants you to become a doctor, a lawyer, um, it, did, did you have any conversation with your family? Were, were that something they were on board with or did they have some other, some other thing that they wanted you to kind of go down? They were, uh, my father was fine. My father's whatever you want to do is fine by me. He also was the one who got me going to theater. So he started taking me to shows when I was 12, 13 and I was hooked. So when we go to New York, I would go to certain, I would go to a show with him. Uh, and uh, we had tickets to go see shows at the Schubert Theater when, uh, so I saw Hello Dolly, the original. I saw, um, I think My Fair Lady. I saw a, a bunch of shows that would come through town and I was hooked on that stuff. So I kind of went down there with the idea that I was interested in studying theater. Um, and uh, and my, my mother was like, uh, my mother became the, the, eventually she was, not throw with me. I also thought it was crazy. I mean, because there was nothing in the background. I was, I, I, I would audition for plays. I didn't get in them. I would do all sorts of things. I was not, uh, but I was taking a, a drama course and I loved reading plays. The whole thing fascinated me. I was intrigued by it. It was like, to me, theater was um, just a, this incredible other world where people went in and between the audience and the actors, they created another reality. I thought this is extraordinary. And uh, so I became, uh, and my, my mother pushed for, you know, not, you know, I, so I went, I was, I, I, so I went there and I would take everything. I tried, you know, let's take some science courses. Let's take uh, a psychology course. Let's try economics. Economics was at eight o'clock in the morning and that was not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen because nobody learns anything out of one bloodshot eye. So it was, uh, so I, I kind of went through and, and but it, I was way hooked on theater at that point. It's, it's like an addiction. I, at what, I what point did you make the switch from, from uh, theater to comedy and, and what triggered that? I was uh, 40. I wrote plays for 22, 23 years. And um, I uh, made that switch uh, because I, finally had gotten to the point where um, I, I had just enough um, reinforcement as a writer, as a playwright, every step of the way. Oh, look, it's, it's going to happen. So I, so my play was done at, uh, I, I got a, when I graduated from, uh, I had a play that was hugely successful at UNC that I wrote with a group of students. And we went out and we took that play on the road. It had unbelievable reviews. Uh, we took it around the state of North Carolina when we were still in school. Um, I then got an, uh, a, a, I got a, um, you know, a, a Schubert fellowship from the school. It was through the school, so that, you know, for playwriting. Then, um, then I got into drama school at Yale. 
and worked, and also had worked as on my own as a playwright and at a theater that I helped run and that we formed together. And then, and, and this just kept following out. It was just enough, just enough so that I was totally broke, just totally broke. And it went that way. Uh, death of a thousand cuts. Yeah, exactly. The perfectly put. And then uh, we went to. Uh, my play was done at the Magic Theater. I had a play done there in San Francisco, uh, and that's thought was the home of a lot of where Sam Shepard's work was done once he left New York. Uh, and so I thought, wow, it's all coming together. And then I had a, I had reached this point where I was at. We had a musical that I wrote with my friend Rusty McGee and another friend ran Forrest to direct it. We'd worked on it. It was a. It was like an hour and twenty minute uh, without an without an intermission, and uh, it was a, a rock and roll musical, and we did a kind of a workshop production at the Alley Theater in Houston, and it was there that I thought, well, now we have we're I made it. This is triple A ball. I mean, and it's kind of a, a, the best. I, I Broadway I realized was now becoming elusive, but if I could play triple A ball, great. I'm very happy. And uh, it was a horrifying experience, and everything that they told me at the theater was a lie. And it just, I went, this is insane. I mean, I, uh, and we had to, they had lied about the amount of actors we could get. They, we ended up, my friend Rusty and I had to actually, uh, you know, tell them, no, you're going to have to hire another actor and get rid of a, a student actor because we're not doing this. This is not what we signed on for. And we had to help pay for the other actor. Was, was this was this the star of rock and roll? The star of rock and roll, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and we made it into a two act play, and uh, and then um, they, I was supposed to be able to stay there and work on it, and they said no, we no, that's not, we don't have the place for you to stay. Well, I'm broke, so I I need to come back there, and my friend Rusty had gone home. He's married as a kid. He's, he can't be there. I go I go across town now. At this point, I'd done just enough comedy. I was kind of working. Time and time, it, it, it started to do more stand-up and was getting pretty accomplished at it. I'd done it off and on, but as a hobby. And I went across town to audition at a place called Spellbinders. And uh, I did the audition, hoping I could get something. They said, well, oh, we've got, a, we got an opening in three weeks, and uh, we'll fly you back, and then we're going to pay you. They, 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 then they put me on as a headliner, which is completely unbelievable. So they they flew me back, they paid me more, and they gave me a car, and I was in a nicer hotel. And I said, well, that's that. And uh, I said, drunks, a drunk at a at a comedy club treated me with more respect than than the place that I'd aspired to be a part of. And and that was that. And uh, um, and I I really uh, didn't regret that decision. I, I, I missed it. There was a hole in my heart, but I, I you know, I, I just felt, well, I'm going to go out there and write my stuff and I'm going to have to act in it. I'd have picked a better actor, but nobody let me. <laughs> I'm curious, and I know comedians get asked this question a lot. What was your first night of stand-up like? I mean, was it, was it, did you, did you kill? Did you bomb? Oh, I was awful. <laughs> it was just awful. I was so nervous. And I'd been very comfortable up to then speaking in front of people. But once I said, I'm going to make you laugh, whew, I uh, literally, the, uh, the you can hear, I've got the tape still, and uh, and it's hidden away. I just, I can, li I can barely listen to it. You just hear this, 
you just hear my breathing. Before, it's about 30 seconds before I say the first words. And I just died up there, a horrible death, and then came back the next week, which shows just how stupid I am. But the first week, um, and I don't know if this is, uh, you can edit this out, but this is actually what occurred. The, I had a dog named John John, and uh, he uh, named after one of the Kennedys, not me, somebody else. And so the dog, my Cocker Spaniel, seeing that I was in danger, kind of raced toward the stage, jumped on this, jumped up there, and came toward me, and I grabbed him and put him on my lap and did something that I would do around the house for fun to entertain people, which I held him up like this, uh, you know, with, holding his paws out, and went, and this is how a dog masturbates, and I just played with his genitals in front of the audience. Big laugh, huge laugh, massive laugh. I put him down and said, thank you very much, and thank the dog, and we're out of here. And, that, and at that point, I probably should have made it a two, you know, I should have worked with him. <laughs> Do you still get a rush now when you get on stage, or are you at a point of comfort level? I mean, do you still have any of the nerves, um, or or is it that you've done it so many different times now? It's it's like standing in your living room. I had nerves when I went back on the road after the hiatus. That was up until then. Uh, the nerves were gone. Um, I could sit and talk to you. Uh, I would I would spend five ten minutes looking at what I had to do, my notes and stuff and put them down and then I could sit and talk to you. Uh, and, and then they go and there'd be 30 seconds and I could go see you and I'd walk on stage. Now, did you, um, did you eventually do the whole New York circuit and have to, you know, from, from Catch a Rising Star to Danger Fields to yeah, I did the Cellar, did you end up doing that whole circuit like everybody else? I did, absolutely. That's how Ooh. you learn. Who was in the who was who was in I, I guess I don't want to say graduating class, but who was essentially in your class at that time? Who was well, in the circuit first, that you'd see I, every night? The great the great thing was the people I was with were just extraordinary. And uh, so the first time I, I really went into catch, uh, which was just great. It was a great club up on the Upper East Side of New York, and um, it was um, Rosie O'Donnell was the host, Dennis Leary. Uh, Kevin Meany, uh, Mario Cantone, and me, and it was that was who I up and because I was working a room that uh, that we were running as a theater called the West Bank Cafe downstairs theater bar, and we had this b below a restaurant we had a bar and a stage and a hundred seats and we would do plays. Really, we did two new plays each, two new one acts each week, and really simple, no set, no nothing. And I would introduce all the plays, and I'd become, and and then on Saturday night at midnight we would do a show, a free show, where we would, um, I would do stand up, and and uh, my, and my friend Rusty would do some music and some comedy, musical comedy stuff that he'd written, and uh, we, uh, so I went across town, and and now I had to take the stuff I was doing there, and and it created pounds of material. Now I had to convert that material for the audience that came to a comedy club. And uh, I really learned from those guys a lot. And uh, it, was, it was just, a, it was great. I mean, Dennis Leary was on stage that night. The first time I walked in and he was doing a bit on smoking, which was one of his banner first, one of his first breaking bits, you know, which, when he became kind of well-known. And I uh, heard the bit and I went, well, there goes my, uh, that's the end of my smoking bit. That's gone. That's, I'm not doing that again. 
and I just would pick up things, bam, 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 and and watching the other guys. Kevin Meaney was a genius. Mario Cantona's brilliant. Uh, Dennis was terrific. It was just a, it was a great group to learn from. Was the rant thing always your shtick, or I mean, or, or or I mean, how did the how did the angry man persona come about? Um, was that just I mean, where did that come from? Uh, yeah. It came from the fact that I was, I was yelling some of the time. Some of the things would, I was doing was were making me crazy. But I wouldn't yell out. I would turn around and yell at the wall behind me because I didn't think the audience could deal with it. And finally, a, a comic came in with a friend of mine uh, who had been my, my, my who, the guy who was my opening act for years was John Bowman. He, he and I had worked together at the West Bank. He brought in... Um, his friend from uh, Michigan, Dan Ballard, who was a big guy and, and really extremely funny. And uh, Dan did his bit, and then I did some stuff and came off stage. And Dan came to me and he went, "Come here." He said, "Look, I'm on stage yelling, and I'm not, and I got nothing to be yelling about. You're on stage, you should be yelling, and you're not yelling. I want you to go on stage and yell everything." And I did, and that was that. And I went, "Oh." And then that became the, the it, 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 in, it completely influenced everything I did because now, I've been sitting on the anger, and that's never it's never comfortable. So how do you, how do you keep the anger man persona with such an unmenacing giggle? And where did the giggle come from? Um, no, my, my, because I laugh like my father, my wife laughs like her father. Did you inherit the giggle from somebody? Probably my dad. I think so. And my brother, my brother laughed harder than I did. My, but my father, uh, I think I got it from him. Now, was there ever a point where, and you know, and, and obviously you've you've found great success, you know, and we're talking about Hannah and her sisters and some of the other things that came up. Was there a point in your career where you thought, oh wow, I really need to start looking at a plan B? No. This is always you. This was the path always. And there was ever. no plan B. It's it, you're talking to somebody who's nuts. Um, there was no plan B. I just, um, once I found, once I went, I was broke, um, but I could get by uh, when we were running the room. We were finally making what you'd make maybe as an off-Broadway actor. And uh, I could get dinner there. And the, the only thing I really lacked for was uh, if, if I'd gotten sick, I had no health insurance. So if I was sick, I would go to a clinic. Um, and... Uh, but it, it never even fazed me. Uh, I mean, I just, this is great. I'm happier than, but what are you gonna give me that's gonna make me happier? And, because uh, I was working a lot. I mean, I was working all the time and uh, down there and we were doing, we were running shows six nights a week, seven nights a week sometime. And, uh, and, then, um, and then it was, once I got into stand up, it was like, this is great. And I started to get paid. So, so, so when I got, you know, when I made that transition, uh, I mean, I was, you know, I was used to being broke and, uh, um, and I was lucky because I transitioned quickly from, I had some gigs as a middle act, the guy in the middle, and that didn't pay as much, but I went pretty much quickly into being a headliner and in enough places, not, not A rooms, but B rooms and, uh, 
and that really helped. And so I was not gonna. There wouldn't. And no, there was never a plan B. Once once I got out of, I, I always felt I'll get by. Um, this is too important. I can't do anything else. The only thing that I might have done, and which is the plan B was with with theater, was is that I'd get a job teaching, and that was impossible to get a job teaching. Now you landed a role alongside uh, some of the biggest names in the business, and Woody Allen's Hannah and her sisters. How did how did that opportunity come about? Julia Taylor, who's probably one of the, the and I don't say this because she cast me, you just go through her films, he's even said it himself, is, was one of the great casting directors. And uh, she would come to see the shows at the West Bank where we were doing stuff. And she really liked me and she liked my friend Rusty. And so she said, uh, um, you know, you two are going to be in a Woody Allen film someday. And I went, oh yeah, right, okay, great. I mean, it was terrific. It, that was... That could get you through. I mean, that the great thing about to me was is that you could make shit up, and uh, I was would go, oh okay, you know whether you could be lying to me. If it, it was yeah. a great lie, I used to tell my agent, just tell me somebody called. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be real. Just pretend. Uh, and so within two, within a year, two years, we were in. He, she, she cast us in Hannah. Uh, Rusty plays a drugged out guy. It's the first that first shot where we're going down the hallway and we come out of the elevator. It's me and Christian Clemens. He'd not been in a movie. John Turturro's in that scene. Um, J.T. Walsh is in that scene. Um, uh, Julie Kavner, uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus. Uh, it was kind of unbelievable. Um, how did you eventually get your first appearance on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart? Um, I was on before John, so um, John really, if it weren't for me, John wouldn't have had a show. So I'm the one who kept the whole thing propped up. It was all on my shoulders. No, I was, I was there when uh, Craig Kilborn uh, started. From the very beginning, I, I was there from like the first or second week on. And it was Liz Winstead and, uh, and my friend Hank Gallo, who was the uh, uh, producer and Liz Winstead was the creator. Liz knew my work. I'd been in clubs. They needed people who could pump out material. I had pounds of material. Uh, so they asked me to come in each week or every, I can't remember, each week or every other week. And uh, you know, what we need you to do is uh, do a kind of my uh, editorial, which is what I did initially, no audience. And I would sit there and I wouldn't write it out and I would do it and then I would do it again because I, 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 I work in front of an audience, but even there, I, I knew my bit, so I would kind of, and then I would kind of convert it to what we were doing there, and what, and uh, I could talk about what I wanted to talk about. So I go there and blow out the okay, this and this and this, and we do it one time, and then they go keep this, drop that, do that, do it, keep this, do that, drop that, do it again. All right, keep this, this, and this. And then finally, about the fourth one, done. And then they brought in an audience. I started writing it. And uh, and then once I started in that, then they would we'd work on it, and they would help me do the edit. Uh, and then I made the. Uh, and then I said to them, I, "What I really wanted to do, which nobody listened to, uh, has been the story of my career. What I wanted to do was to do a um, summary of the news." at the end of the week, like, uh, just do, give me four minutes and let's go through the news. And um, 
Let's take the jokes that have been thrown away because they would throw away pounds of really good stuff. Pounds. And give me those and I'll do that. And uh, they said, no, no, what we got is we got a, what they had at that time was a ton of footage early on with Kilbourne and, they, and the footage at that point was free. And uh, so what they got was uh, all of these weird kind of things like uh, um, squirrels on skis and all this kind of bizarro stuff. And they put it together and throw that stuff at me and gave me two writers and, and Hank is the producer. And we'd lock up for an afternoon and come up with a thing. And, uh, and that became Back in Black. So you've outlasted then Kilborn Stewart. Now you're with Trevor Noah. Yeah. I think he's done an incredible job, especially having to follow John Stewart. Yes. Um, some people were kind of questioning choosing him to take over the show at the start, but um, he had worked with you guys before that happened. What did you think of the decision at that back in, at, at that point in time? Did did you feel yeah this is gonna this is gonna work? Well, I know the guy. I didn't I didn't know Trevor well enough to believe it was gonna work. I didn't know I, what I thought. This I'm, I always think this. Okay. Um, I was on the show, you're going to bring in a new person to be the face of that show, okay? I had done very well in my position, okay? But I'm, I'm in the barking dog position. So just bring me in to audition. You don't have to give me the job. Just let me audition, you jackasses. I've been on the show. And then say no, that's all. That's all I'm asking. And so I did it once when John, they didn't ask me to do it. Then when John left, he didn't ask me to do it. Um, but I thought maybe, uh, I, I kind of went, I thought maybe Samantha B at that point would be an interesting choice. I thought her or John Oliver. That's yeah, because John had already filled in for him when he was making that movie, right? John had right? filled in and John Oliver was great. And, and Samantha was, is, you know, with her own show, you can see she's terrific. And uh, it would have been, both of those would have given that, you know, we already knew with John what we were going to get. And, uh, uh, and with John, it was less of a leap in a sense, uh, and, but with a different sensibility, for sure. I, I think that John is a, another just brilliant mind. Um, Samantha would have been great. And I, I didn't just didn't know enough about Trevor. And then it's, it's worked out great. Yeah. In that same vein, you've been on or around a lot of the other uh, late night talk shows, Letterman, Leno, Colbert, Fallon, Ferguson, um, who, I don't, I don't want to say who impressed you the most. I guess I should ask instead, which, which, which host did you click with the best, I guess? Craig Kilborn. I mean, uh, Craig Kilborn. No, I mean, Craig Ferguson. Ferguson. Yeah, no, Craig Kilborn and I never clicked. Um, but, uh, Craig Ferguson and I got along just spectacularly. And part of it was because he just talked to me. Because I never understood the question, and the, we, you prepare for an interview. What, what do we, you know? Did you call me up and say, "What are we going to do? What, what planet are we on?" Okay, you have a conversation. One can rely on this. You know, you bring somebody on. I mean, I, I kind of after a while. I mean, I get it if I'm on like Conan for the first time, the second time, by the third time. Come on. You know well, me. because there's this premise of setups, right? When there's a comedian on, there's the, the whole premise of setups, which I was right. kind of debating, you know, when I knew you were coming on the show. I'm like, okay, so, do, you know, normally this would be my style of interview. But sometimes with a comedian, sometimes their people goes, say, they want some setups. I don't I'd want rather some. just 
ask yes. you these questions. No, I, and when people say, do you want me to, what setups do you want to go? Just talk to me. I'll find a joke somewhere. And, and, uh, and, you know, and in part, some of the time you just want to have a conversation. I was on with Ferguson. Uh, this is what used to make, and to me, it's what made, you know, Jack Parr, for whatever you think of Jack Parr, you know, it, it is that when I was a kid, I'm watching him, I'm like, you know, it was just that they would talk. And, uh, you know, you had on people like for a hundred shows. I mean, these, some of these people, you have up to a hundred shows. They would come back and be the other guest. They weren't the sidekick, but they'd be the kind of the sidekick. And, uh, and they just have conversations. And, and so with Craig, that's what we had. And boys, one night we're on, we're on there, we're, we're rolling along and Craig goes, um, uh, we discover we were living in the East Village at the same time. There was, we were, what bar, and he was, a, he, was a, he was drinking heavily at that time and I was drinking and what, and we eventually found out that we spent a lot of time at the same bar and never and never bumped into each other never bumped into each other but didn't know each other at the time either but never never cried we never talked we you know we were both sitting on our plate wherever we were and it, that's a great moment that's a real moment on tv and what makes what makes for something special okay it's why people use this you know is for that instant please let's get a grip you know television can still do it but i mean I, you know it's i just I, and when they want me to do one of those shows it's kind of like i then you've got to sit there and deconstruct your act to put it back together to do it as a way it's a two for you know you're doing it as a two-hander yeah um i, I want to ask you about the support the troops tour you went on with robin williams uh, did, did you get to spend a, a fair amount of time with him on that trip yeah, I did. It was really the um, it was the Christmas tour, uh, and that was really where I got to spend time with Robin. And uh, is there a particular memory that stands out to you about Robin about that trip? The amount of energy that he brought to it, the amount of care that he gave, uh, the amount of love he had for those folks. Uh, I mean, he his energy was astonishing, and he we we would come to a place. That, I was, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm dying. This is like, this is like, it was, you know, like eight shows, seven days, you know, uh, six countries. And we, we, we'd be in a, I love to say chopper. We'd be in a chopper and he would jump out of the chopper and race up to the troops and just start bam, 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 bam. But what stands out was the, uh, the, uh, the joy he, he brought to those troops and the, uh, his um, his boundless energy, which was staggering. I mean, he, he what you saw was extraordinary. And as I, you know, and his, if you want to see what he was like, you know, just in terms of being there, you you go to the Good Morning Vietnam and watch the last scene of him leaving the troops, and that's exactly what he was like. And he was, he he had a a, a great big heart and a brilliant mind and a photographic memory, which I think got him into trouble from time to time. When, when I met Robin a few years back, I asked him a question I'd like to ask you as well. Sure. From a comedic standpoint, what would you say is the funniest thing you've ever said or done or seen anyone else in the business say or do? Jeez, God, I just had that question. Um, and I can't tell you one of them because it was, I could remember the joke. I can't remember jokes. 
One of the great ones to me was, uh, uh, you know, that it was Kathleen Madigan uh, the, when we were in Afghanistan. Uh, I think it was. She, she, I think she did it there first. Was is that, you know, you've done this for these people and this. You brought them roads. You brought them uh, houses. You brought teaching. You've done this and the water and yada yada. And uh, so, you know, when you when the when you when you when, when you the troops get back, you know, it'd be a good idea. Why don't you try, invade Detroit? I mean, that's the first one that comes to mind is hers. But there were. Uh, you know, um, uh, I just somebody just asked me that question, and uh, it was the uh, the one that I said the bit was the um, seven the seven words you can't do on television by George Carlin, and um, the I think it's the five stages of drunkenness by uh, Larry Miller, which you can get online, which is just the the finest crafted. Uh, tonight Show bit or Late Night Show bit I've ever watched in my life. It's spectacular. Just for kicks, I'd like to throw out a name and you tell me the first daughter memory that comes to mind. Sure. Okay. Carlin. Brilliant. Seinfeld. Uh, different. Prior. Unique, extraordinary. Billy Crystal. Uh, wow. Um, entertainer. Carson. Old school entertainer. Carson just got it. Lily Tomlin. Adore. So you you had a, a great and hilarious role in Pixar's Inside Out as Anger. And I, I wonder why they thought Anger would be a good role for you. Um, how did that role come about? What made you take it? What made me take it was that uh, is that um, they're the greatest animation group in the country, uh, and that I, it's anger. So what are you going to turn that down? Also, their humility when they asked me, they sent me a whole box of stuff, of and they said you may not be familiar with us, and I was like, wow, you don't even see people like this in Los Angeles. It's like you are so lucky you're here with me. They were really about. We really would like to work with you. Um, I don't know if you really under you know how what the kind of work. And they sent me all of their a ton of their stuff that I'd already seen. It was, and I was like, and even the uh, they sent a part of the script which which was not ready to be seen. And I read it and I thought, wow, I'm going to be in their first bomb. That'll be unique. And so. Uh, they had just started to really get to work on it and that they were going to spend five years doing it, which explained everything about them as a, a group. And they weren't in Los Angeles. Good for you. And, uh, and that then when I went and talked to them, they said uh, when they were pitching this to Disney, which was part of the deal, was uh, uh, that they said, imagine, the first one they said was, imagine Lewis Black as anger. And that and that was the final key. And uh, and then of course they the way they get you is to say, well, you're going to be immortal. Whoa! Well, who passes that up? Where did the whole finger thing come from? I mean, you've got the most active fingers in the industry, with perhaps the exception of Paul Rubens. Yes, I'd have no idea. And I seriously, the first time I ever was conscious of it was coming upstairs from. Uh, the uh, comedy stop at the Trop in uh, Atlantic City, and people were doing that at me. And I turned to my friend and said, what what's that? And they said, well, that's what you do on stage. I, I don't do that. I wasn't conscious of it. 
I just did it. Um, it was just the way I kind of expressed things. And, and then it took me a while to get over the fact I was doing it. Now I, it's back to like, I don't know, I'm doing it. What have you got coming up? What's what's coming up in the future? Is it more daily show? Do you have do you have are you going to be getting it back out and about again now that things are starting to loosen yeah. up? I have a, a, what you, folks can go to uh, lewisblack.com. <laughs> I hate saying that, but they can and get a real sense of what I'm up to. I have a thing called a rant cast. I've done 93 of them, which are uh, uh, these um, I read rants that were written by the audience. Uh, I will con I'm reading them now. If folks, if I'm coming to your area, just know that I read, I make a, a concerted effort to read the rants written by you, the folks in the area, so it becomes the show about, if I'm in, uh, like when I was in Biloxi, it was the Biloxi show. It was either Biloxi or the Mississippi show or anybody who lived near there, or, you know, it's it, that's the kind of way I go at it. Uh, and that's really uh, been really important to me, uh, is being able to express the anger of other individuals. And it's really, uh, it, and it's what I know, and it's how it, it's what kept me sane during the pandemic, because that I didn't need an audience for. I know how to read a rant, and they know, how, and they got better and better in writing them. And so that's that's one of the things on the board. And I, the tour starts again. September 15th up north and um, I'll be uh, heading uh, heading heading into uh, where you know uh, uh, Waterville Maine is one of the stops Rutland Vermont uh, oh yeah the first stop is Northampton Massachusetts and uh, and I can't wait to get back on the road and uh, and then there's a, a something else coming up that I can't talk about but uh, folks are gonna I can guarantee you this when they hear about it they'll be very excited that is very, very cool. And everyone, I'm sure, will look forward to hearing whatever that is. Yeah, Lewis, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, you've been fantastic as always. Ladies and gentlemen, Lewis Black. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Looks like it took. I know you got to run. I was going to share the Robin. I was going to share what Robin told me, but I know you got to blow out. What did he tell you? His favorite joke of his favorite joke was George Carlin's opening line to the first comic relief. Wow. Um, uh, he said that, you know, if you remember that that was the very first one they were doing HBO, they didn't know yeah. what they could do censorship or not. Uh, all the comedians were nervous about what they were going to do or yeah. not, but what they were going to be able to say and not say Carlin was opening. So after Whoopi Billy and, and, and Robin gets up and starts doing their thing and, you know, they do the MC thing, they intro him, he gets up and remember this was for starving people, mm -hmm. George Carlin's opening line was anorexia. I don't get it. Why should I give a fuck if some rich cunt doesn't want to eat? <laughs> wow. And so the brilliance of just, he broke all the barriers. Yeah. He just, he threaded the needle. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. He opened the door for everybody else the rest of the time. And he told a joke about anorexia in a telethon for starving people. Perfect. He's so sweet. <laughs> and 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 he, Robin told me, he says, if you look back, he goes, you'll actually see me fall like he literally falls to the ground, like he loses his legs and falls to the ground. And I, he, yeah, and uh, that's true. He would do that. Yeah.